first talk, <clears throat> I'd like to go back to something I said yesterday. I talked a little about birth hyphen and hyphen death and the connectedness of that phrase in Zen practice. <clears throat> and if you go to Zen Center, at least I used to go to Zen Center, and when you go there, um, let's see if I can do this, um, and you're at the uh, Zendo, and you're being called to practice, they bang on a big, thick piece of wood that's hanging, big hanging piece of wood, and they bang And this is how you know it's time to come into practice. And then they slowly speed it up a little. And when, when that happens, you can't get in anymore. You've had your time to get in, and if you're out, you can sit outside. But um, when I was first there, and this is at, down at Tassahara, at the monastery that Zen Center has. It's part of Zen Center. Um, <clears throat> uh, it would be painted on the, um, you can't hear. Okay, I need a little more mic, I guess. How's that? Can you hear better now, worse now? More, you want more, okay? More, 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 more. Okay, Nikki's helping. That's good, thank you. Is that pretty good? Okay, thank you. And so, on that block of wood, that's loud now, at least to my ear, but on the block of wood, it would be written, great is the matter of birth and death. Great is the matter of birth and death. Great, I'll say once more, great is the matter of birth hyphen and hyphen death. Life passes swiftly and is quickly lost. Awaken, awaken, do not waste your life. And that's part of the call to practice that they're banging on every day or every time there's a sitting. And I always appreciated that great is the matter of birth and death and the oneness of it, the unity of birth and death, not, oh, great is birth and death is not great. No, birth and death, because they come together, as I said yesterday. And death, is acknowledged in, I believe, every culture in the world, and the bigness of it, the greatness of it, which includes the grief and the celebration that comes along with that at times. And although you wouldn't guess it from the rain, it's All Hallows' Eve tonight. And All Hallows' Eve is what we call Halloween. 
And so I was looking up a few of the um, rituals that we're part of right now as we sit this retreat. And All Hallows Eve is also known as All Saints Eve. And um, it was celebrated it, oh, in, in, in the Christian tradition. It's also considered a holy evening. And people celebrate and with pray, prayful spiritual bond between those in heaven and those who are alive. That it's signaling there's a connection, a bond, a relationship between those who are alive and those who are not alive in the usual way, but are in another realm of reality, sometimes called heaven. And uh, so I also looked up Day of the Dead, which we're coming into now. And um, in Day of Dead, in the Day of the Dead, family and friends pray for and remember friends and family members who have died and help support their spiritual journey. Right, so death now being understood as a spiritual journey. It's not just the end of this show. And then I also found out something which I didn't know much about, I'm learning about now, called Sajiki or Sagaki in the Japanese Buddhist tradition, in the Zen tradition. And it's a ceremony for the spirits of departed ones that's done in Zen as part of Zen practice, as part of Buddhist practice. And it summons forth all the restless spirits and pacifies their agitation and violence within and without. And, it, and one reads the names of close friends and family members who have died as part of that ritual. And um, Koben Chino, who was a great Zen master who impacted a number of people in the Bay Area, including my wife, who was totally uh, uh, illuminated to Buddhism through Koben Chino originally. He talked about the Sagaki ceremony, that it makes a statement about how to deal with the so-called negative things, negative happenings, negative parts of phenomena, which is how mostly we think about death. That's a negative thing. And he talked about it as something to expand our awareness and awareness expanded into existence, which is possibly unseen, unknown, unthought. And understanding the negative is another positive side of reality. Awareness is, and then he says, awareness is already round and pure. We can expand our practice of compassion in space as well as time with this ceremony. And when the ceremony's happening, the Zen person, the doshi, walks around making noises and, and uh, chanting welcome to the hungry ghosts, the hungry ghosts. Be, and, and encouraging them to be at ease and to even uh, if they're vaguely known and also that the unconscious and unknown can be at ease and um, invites them to receive the best food and be welcome and feel safe. And so you hear the connection between aliveness and what's called not aliveness in the usual sense, it's spirit.
And then there's part here in this ceremony that I found very moving, which I feel describes a little bit what we're doing here on this retreat. And it said, this is from Cobancino, he said, the process of the ceremony, in, in the process of the ceremony, we're setting a protected space inviting the shadow in a ceremonial space in which it can be safely held, meeting it with everyday kindness, right? It's an enactment of our deepest compassion. In practice, we have to be able to enter hell for the benefit of suffering being, whether it's ourselves or someone else. Actually, this is from uh, a woman, I'm going to forget her last name, Diane. Diane's her first name. She's a Zen student who taught a lot about working with pain. Does anybody know who that is? Cohen? Pardon? Cohen? Cohen? I don't, I'm not sure, but I know her first name's Diane. My apologies. Um, um, so she says, in practice, we have to be able to enter hell for the benefit of a suffering being, whether it's ourselves or someone else. And the deepest compassion is to feed the hungry and nourish the unsatisfied in body, speech, and mind just when the opportunity presents itself. And so I feel this, what part of what we're doing here is we're in a protected space and we're inviting the uninvited in, which is death. Nobody wants death, at least in my understanding. That's not something we want or think we want or are looking forward to. That may come at times as part of our practice or part of our life, but it's an unfamiliar relationship that we're inviting in to discover and to meet with our, with everyday kindness and the enactment of our deepest compassion, as she says. And so this question of birth and death, birth and death, here and now, because it's all right here, birth and death. It's, it's nowhere else. What's born, what will die is here. And it's part of us. It's part of our, our reality. It's not a mistake. It's not we've done the wrong thing. It's not, oh, if we do it right, it'll never happen. Good luck, you know. Here's a little bit about normalizing this reality. So, uh, and this may be a little old, these numbers, but they're from a couple years ago. Uh, it said, 150,000 people die every day. 150,000 people die every day. And it is said, at least when I got these numbers, 350,000 people are born every day. Right? So that's all happening every day. That's all just part of reality. It's a little how reality works what's talked about in Buddhism as arising and passing, arising and passing. Right? Or so we could say, we could go to other numbers that I found, 105 people die every minute. 
every minute, like while I'm talking, 105 or so people will die, or 250 people will be born while I'm speaking in this next minute. And then they kept, they kept refining the numbers, right? So two people, almost two people die every second, right? And that's just, right? That's just reality. That's part of our reality. And of course, while this is happening, four people will be born And this is our world that we are of, that we are part of, that we live in. It's the normal world. <clears throat> and so I'm hoping we can start to see the normalcy of what we're sitting with right here, right? The, the normalcy of being alive and the normalcy of the fact that we won't live forever, that we will die, and that that's just true of all of us. You know, I wanted to call the talk uh, the normalcy of death or normalizing death, and uh, it's, it is one of the paradoxes of life is how normal it is. Just the arising and passing of things. And it's not different in Buddhism. I like Buddhism very much that way because it points to the normalcy of reality as being the doorway to awakening, not as forget about it or get rid of it or deny it or change it or fix it. No, the normalcy is where we can wake up in this normal human world. The Buddha was a normal human person. I always think that's so great that he wasn't a something from somewhere else. That he was a human being and he was a human being who woke up to the human potential of what's possible for us as human beings. And so his death is an important part of Buddhism, an important part of the, the Buddhist scriptures, right? The Pali Canon is uh, the, and it's interesting that here's the name of the story of the Buddha's death is the Mahaparinibbana Sutta. The Mahaparinibbana Sutta. Everybody know what Nibbana is? Right? It's translated often in English as Nirvana. Right? The Mahaparinibbana Sutra is about the Buddha's death. It's about the freedom that he discovers and he lived and is also part of his dying. It's not the end of the story. Actually, it's so interesting to see, to read that story and to read what he does because he knows he's going to die. He's not unaware of the fact death is beckoning him, is coming to him. He, uh, 
yeah, he knows he's going to try to remember the story in some detail. He, he actually, he, he ends up eating some bad food and he dies from the food. Um, but he, he knows it's coming. And so he has a few months before he's going to die. And so what does he do with his time? And which is a really good question for all of us because we could all pick a number, right? Okay, I've got two years, five years, 10 years, three months, a month, 10, 20 years, 30 years. We could all pick a number. What do we want to do with the time that's left? Because there is a certain finality to bodily existence for us as human beings. And that's, I think that's true of all of us. And even what do you think the Buddha did, you know, given he knew he was going to die? It's an interesting reflection if you don't know the story to consider. And of course, I'll tell you the answer. So <clears throat> he, what he does is he starts going around um, to visit all the people who'd become his followers. He goes to all the different um, monasteries or sites where people are living who are practicing given his teaching and he and he teaches because that's what he does he's a teacher at that point and he keeps pointing to actually the eightfold path right how to how to live a life of awakening which is what the eightfold path is about how to live a life of awakening using wise understanding and wise intention and wise um, action and wise speech and wise livelihood and wise uh, energy and wise contemplate, wise concentration and wise mindfulness. And that's, and he just, and he keeps talking to them about how to live a life of awakening. And so it's the same for me, I think it's the same question for us. Whatever time we have, how do we keep waking up right now? Because really, this is another perspective in Buddhism. Now is the only time we actually have. Just right now. This is it. This is the whole show. Right now. And that, to come into alignment with that, is a very powerful part of practice. <clears throat> so you could also consider what what would you do or what will you do not what would you do what will you do what's important to you or what do you care about or what do you value or what's meaningful or what do you love what moves you what touches you and it doesn't have to be oh I'm going to enlighten the whole world or do what Buddha did no, what do you want to do? What, what moves you, given who you are, what's true for you? Because that's where the power is. That's where the potency of reality is, because you are reality. Each of us, we are reality. This is reality in human form. And it's quite amazing how it manifests for, you know, a minute, a day, a week, a year, a hundred years. And we each are part of this kind of amazing 
magical is the word that keeps coming to me lately, magical reality. That is not, um, it is not eternal. It's temporal. It lives for a while in this form. And then who knows what happens after. I don't say I know what's going to happen after. Maybe many lives and we'll get reborn and maybe that happens. Let, let's see, you know. And I, and I mean that quite sincerely. I, I'm interested to see what happens. And I think it's one of the great benefits of practice is if we can be here now, we might be able to be there then, like when we're dying. And when death happens, who knows what happens to consciousness exactly at that point. And I've seen enough wild things about where consciousness can go, so I, I, I would like to be around for the show to see what happens. Here, I'll tell you just one thing about my accident, because my consciousness went some very interesting places. And people afterwards, a few people who I've talked to about where I've been, said some interesting things. They said, oh, well, you know, you'd done a lot of practice, so you, were, you stayed there, to, and you could, you could be there for that, even though, you know, I had a brain injury. Technically, I wasn't there at all. Right? And at least medically, I was not there. But something was there, but it wasn't me that was there. And, uh, and so some people said, well, that's because of all your practice. And, you know, and I'm like, okay, that, that could be. I'm, I'm open to that possibility. But also, I got so unplugged in my accident I was so not there in my accident that maybe that's more what is here when we start to relax our identity about who and what we think we are. There may be something more numinous here than we can even imagine. And so I think I also consider that another possibility about what happened. Not that, oh, it was all my practice that did it, no, it was me not being there that is who and what we are in a certain way. So, birth and death, birth and death. So I was reflecting for myself about birth and death. And again, I spent a lot of time in hospice, but also I spent time with both my parents as they were dying. And that was very uh, humbling, you know, very humbling. I'm glad I could be there with them. I'm really glad about that, happy about that, to be there. But it was very humbling to be with the people who'd raised me. And, you know, they were regular parents. They had their pluses and minuses, like all parents. And, and I'm a parent, so I'm, I'm speaking personally, of course. Um, um, uh, but still, it was really, it's, it's so, there's a lot we don't know about death, and even our relationship to it is something that, as far as I can tell, is an ongoing learning and discovery, which is how I understand the Dharma also. And, uh, 
you know, I remember my dad dying and my dad, uh, good guy and, you know, he'd lived a long time in his words. He was 92 when he died and he, he, he had had it really for a few years. He'd been like, okay, I'm done. Get me out of here, like enough already. You know, and he'd lost, you know, all his friends and things like that, people like that. And, and, but he stuck around and, and I remember, and he died and, uh, and I remember being with his body and, um, and I was surprised at, I was happy um, for a surprising reason. I realized he'd been old in my mind as a young man for many years. And, and it was like being with his body, he wasn't there. And it was so, it surprised me because I realized, oh, he wasn't an old man anymore. And I realized how I'd fixated him in my mind as an old man, even though I'd known him my whole life, right? He'd been many different people during my life, but I'd fixated him because he'd been an old man for a while now. And it had been, you know, what it is to be an old man. You can't take care of yourself well, it's hard, you lose a lot of your life, people, friends, family, things like that. And you can't, you know, the body doesn't work so well, you know, the way it's supposed to when you're, especially at that age, in the 90s. And, and it was just, and I just felt so happy he wasn't an old man. I got, oh, he was free of being an old man now, which I didn't expect that perspective. It wasn't like me trying to impose some Buddhists anything, it just happened. And it was just humbling to, to see that I'd really what was most humbling to me personally, besides whatever my grief for my father's death, which wasn't horrible because you can't live forever, I knew that, but also what was humbling to see was, oh, I'd fixated him in my mind in a certain way, as if that's who he was. He was an old man. That's not who he was. That was just one part of his life, right? And I, that was humbling to see my, it's, this, it's, it's too strong a word, but I don't know the right word, see my ignorance of doing that of fixating him as something because we could look at anybody and and fixate them in some way and it's just not true. It may be whatever we think may be part of who somebody is, but it's definitely not the whole story of who and what's sitting in front of us at any time. It's just a part of how we're thinking about them at the moment, how we're seeing them. <clears throat> And humbling, I like the word humble, and I think it's a good word when we're dealing with death because life and death are both humbling. And the associations I have, the word humble and the word humus and the word Hamish, I have them all associated in my mind, which not all of you will have. So I'll explain humble, meaning humble, meaning it. Um, meaning it's related to humus. Humus is the earth, right? Is the, is the earthiness of the earth. 
the the soil of the earth, the humus. It's it humble to me means it brings us down to earth. It takes us out of the clouds. It brings us back to reality, and then so. Um, uh, humble, humus, Hamish is a Yiddish word that I always liked because when you say somebody is Hamish, it means they have integrity. They're for real. You can trust their realness when somebody's Hamish. So it's what I like about being humbled. I don't think of humbled as as being somebody humiliated me. I'm not making that association. I'm making the association of humble means we come down to earth and we start to land in the real ground of who and what we are. And we can live from that ground of being real together. And being real means to be with things as they are, which includes life and death. <clears throat> and here I'll read to you a little bit of somebody who's, I think, was a very real person. I actually think he was a very Hamish person, which is one of our teachers. And when I say our, I'm including you because he's one of, part of the lineage that Spirit Rock has been born out of, which is Ajahn Chah, who was Jack Cornfield's main teacher. And Ajahn Chah, he talked about, um, here, I'll read a little what he says. He says, here, here's, what he, here's the context he gave this, uh, he said this in. It was, he was asked to visit a woman who was dying, and a, a, um, a householder who was dying. And so he went to her, he went to her house, and she was lying in a bed, and he said, um, please, uh, in your mind, uh, be determined to listen and, and to determine in your mind to listen with respect to the Dharma. During the time I am speaking, be as attentive to my words as if it was the Buddha himself sitting in front of you. Today I have brought nothing material of any substance to offer you, only the Dharma. Listen well, understand that the Buddha himself with his great store of accum accumulated virtue could not avoid physical death. Right? So this is the first thing he says to her. The Buddha, who we revere really, in, in especially in Thailand, um, even the Buddha died. didn't matter how much virtue he had, how great he was. He could not avoid physical death. So he's normalizing her death with the Buddha's death at that time. And then he continues, this very lump of flesh that lies here in decline is Saka Dharma. And I'm not sure if that's the right pronunciation, but let's try it for now. Saka Dharma, the truth. The truth of the body is Sakadharma, and it is the unchanging teaching of the Buddha. The Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and to come to terms with its nature. And its nature is that, as you all know, it arises, it's born, which is just one of the more, most magnificent events one could be part of, because we were all born, Right? And we were there at the beginning, right then. 
And just what a wild thing that we come out of one another. I mean, who made that up? You know, and 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 that it, it starts and arises and sustains for you know a day, a week, a month, a year, a hundred years, and then it fades, right? It changes in that way. And so the Buddha taught us to look at the body, to contemplate it, and come to terms with its nature. The Buddha said, and here's where he really, he just normalizes it. The Buddha said, rich or poor, young or old, human or animal, no being in this world can, exp- can maintain itself in one state for long. Everything experiences change and estrangement. This is a fact of life that we can do nothing to remedy. This is just the way things are. That's mine, that's not, that's not Ajahn Chah. Um, and, but he, and then he says, but the Buddha said, what we can do is to contemplate body and mind and to see their impersonality, see that neither of them is me or mine. Right? So now he's, now he's putting the Dharma into this woman who's dying. He's offering her a very deep teaching. He says, you know, but the Buddha said that what we can do is contemplate the body and mind so to see their impersonality, see that neither of them is mere mind. This truth doesn't apply to you alone. Everybody is in the same position. Even the Buddha and his enlightened disciples They differed from us in only one respect, and that was in their acceptance of the way things are. They saw it could be no other way. And this is our practice, is to begin to learn to come into harmony with the way things are, with this moment, with this life with this birth and death. And it means coming into and finding our balance here is that's our practice. And learning how to be skillful, kind, caring to ourselves, given the beauty and tenderness and robustness of the human heart and mind and the fact that nothing lasts forever, including us. <clears throat> and it's paradoxical because it, this acceptance of the way things are means that we open to everything, right? We open to the good and the bad, the right and the wrong, life, human life, because we are human life. We're the living human life here. And so there are different flavors to working with this paradox that are exemplified in Buddhism. And one of the great beauties of Buddhism is its humanness. Meaning just like we were saying here, like everybody has a different experience, right? 
and, and it's unique and it's the same, this paradoxically at the same time. So we can start to look at the, our lineage, meaning our humanity, meaning, let me say it better, humanity in Buddhism over time, how different people have dealt with this today, yesterday, a year ago, 10 years ago, 100 years ago, 200 years ago, 500 years ago, 1,000 years ago, 2,500 years ago. Because it's been human beings that the Dharma has lived in and through and continues even right now. We, we're it. We're the Dharma now. We are the three treasures, right? The Buddha Dharma Sangha is sitting right here. It's not somewhere else. And, but it's paradoxical because the mind, at least my mind, tends to want to think in terms of right or wrong, this or that, really kind of fixed ways, oh, this or that. And so, you know, you hear Ajahn Chah talking about his, his pointing at deep dharma of not being me or mine, the body and the mind. And, and that's one way that's helpful to understand death. Or, you, or here's from Suzuki Roshi, um, written by one of his students who went to visit him when he, he was dying. And he said, uh, I went up to Suzuki Roshi's room not long before his death. He was in bed, extremely weak, his skin discolored. He bowed, and I did the same. Then he looked right at me, and he said, not with a loud voice, but firmly, he said, don't grieve me, don't grieve me, don't worry, I know who I am. Right? So that's a different understanding of how we might die than we're used to, right? Don't grieve me. I know who I am. And he was one of the more amazing, beautiful human beings to live in the world as far as I can tell. And of course, sometimes there's humor in death in Buddhism. So I always appreciate a little humor. So there was, um, in, in, in the Japanese tradition, there was um, the tradition of writing a death poem. Right? If you were a Zen master, you would know when you were going to die. And so that day, you're supposed to write a little you know, death poem or a haiku. Right? And so... Um, um, this is in China, excuse me, uh, Tao Wei, he, um, um, he told, he announced to his, you know, students and fellow practitioners, tomorrow I'm going to, to die. Tomorrow I'm going. And to the monks and nuns and lay people. And an attendant asked him for a death verse, right? It's like, okay, you're going, give us, let, let's get the poem. And, he, and then he, he says, he said, oh yeah, without a verse, I couldn't die. <laughs> He's got a nice sense of humor. So he wrote a, a poem. He said, birth is thus. Birth is thus. Death is thus. Verse or no verse, what's the fuss? <laughs> you know, and... Somebody did a nice English translation there. Let's let's acknowledge that. But.
you know, and also it's tragic death, right? It's, it's, we love life. We love people. We love one another. And one of the more poignant poems that I've ever read was from um, Isa, Japanese haiku, who lost a number of children. Um, he was a, a lay practitioner and, and um, he'd lost his first child right after it was born and then um, he lost a daughter, the second child, a couple years later and he wrote this poem, this haiku. He said, the world of dew, D-E-W, the world of dew is just the world of dew and yet, and yet. The world of dew is just the world of dew and yet, and yet. And I'll read you one more piece from Sogyal Rinpoche. It's a little more uplifting, so I'm, I'm good to put that in the room too. And he's talking about um, really a Tibetan understanding about death and understanding of the Buddha. And he says, according to the wisdom of the Buddha, we can actually use our lives to prepare for death. We can use our lives to prepare for death. We do not have to wait for the painful death of someone else close to us or the shock of terminal illness to force, force us into looking at our lives. Nor are we condemned to go out empty-handed at death to meet the unknown. We can begin here and now to find meaning in our lives. We can begin to here and now find meaning in our lives. We can make of every moment an opportunity to change and to prepare wholeheartedly, precisely, and with peace of mind for death and eternity. In the Buddhist approach, life and death are seen as one whole, W-H-O-L-E, one whole where death is the beginning of another chapter of life. Death is a mirror in which the entire meaning of life is reflected. So we're here contemplating our reality, our birth and death, to see what's true. What's true? Who who are we? What what are we? Is sometimes a better better understanding for me about what we're looking at. Who are we? Is brings a lot of identity in, but what are we? Brings in an even more fundamental component of our living reality. And as Sogyal Rinpoche says, he says, in the Buddhist approach, life and death are seen as one whole, where death is the beginning of another chapter of life.
Let's sit for a minute, please. for your kind attention. We'll have a period of walking meditation. Mm -hmm. 